We take a single episode of a science fiction TV series and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. This is the Fusion Patrol Podcast. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight we're looking at the Cold Jack the Night Stalker episode number eight, Bad Medicine. A series of apparent suicides amongst wealthy socialites sets the backdrop for a series of bizarre jewel robberies. Carl Kolchak suspects they were murders and carries out his own investigation. After he and the police see an eight-foot-tall Indian disappear into thin air at the scene of another jewel robbery, Kolchak enlists the help of a Native American expert at the university. What Kolchak has seen is a diablero a shaman that has the power to put people in trances and change into other animals. Kolchak eventually tracks him down to his lair and destroys him. Okay, that was a short one. <laughs> short recap. Uh, you know, I was when I was doing the recap, I was thinking about it, and I said, you know, there's, there's like points that get hit during the course of the episode, but I, I kind of just want to talk about them as they go instead of... Hit him in the recap. So, um, the, the, the Diablero, what, uh, what did you think of this episode? Well, I think it's the kind of, it, it's trying to, trying to enrich a basic, uh, supernatural story. Because, because Kolchak has done the, the various kind of, uh, monsters in a, in my opinion, slightly by the numbers kind of a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, as in, you know, this week we're going to have someone undead. Well, this week we're going to have someone else undead. This week we're going to have some. <laughs> um, but, you know, this week we're going to do the standard vampire. We're going to do the standard zombie. We're going to do a shapeshifter. And there isn't a lot more to it than that. You know, obviously you do a vampire, it comes with a certain amount of vampire mythos, but it's. As we've said a number of times, a lot of it's quite um, recently established, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain pick-and-mix approach to it. The, this kind of episode, picking up on on uh, on a slightly kind of um, richer, more uh, developed myth, is... To my mind, the kind of thing I keep making the, the the comparisons with the X Files, but I kind of can't help myself. It's to my mind the kind of thing that the X Files absolutely excelled at. Mm-hmm. You know, they they would they would they would they would find some uh, piece of uh, mythology, or I mean, it doesn't matter what culture it comes from, but you you get you get a story and you kind of unpick it and you work out how it would work in the in the real world as it were or what what you know what the kind of um signs would be that Mulder and Scully would would pick up on and then you weave your story around that um my feeling is that if that's what they're trying to do with this they haven't quite got there yet uh, it did just kind of seem like a bit of a shapeshifter rerun to hmm. me but you know i guess points for effort i appreciate it not being the uh, standard zombie vampire werewolf kind of uh, thing that we had from the the old universal horror 
library, which, by the way, these were done by Universal, um, on the Universal lot. So, I mean, they, they kind of have a tradition of, of hanging on those, but, and I think this is, you know, what would have to happen with the series as they just simply run out of things to do is that they're going to have to start looking further afield for different mythology. And I did a bit of research. I'm not going to say that I spent an extensive time down at the library, but you know, I spent some time at the Google library (laughs) and uh, it actually uh, from personal experience as well. So, you know, in the United States, we spent a, a fair amount of time trying to exterminate the Native Americans. Um, it's, it's an unpleasant fact of history, but, but it is. Most of the things that were done in the name of civilizing them, supposedly, was really done in the name of trying to wipe them out of existence. Mm-hmm. And that continued well into the beginning of the 20th century. And there's a lot of racism involved in that and as movies came along then we started having the westerns which was very popular up through the 50s and into the 60s and of course the indians were always pretty much always the bad guy and there was a time late 60s going into the 70s where suddenly there was this sort of cultural shift away from it and then everybody started taking on board the the idea that the Native Americans were sort of spiritually better and much better stewards of the land and more in touch with the earth. And, and so there was this sort of renaissance of Indian culture or faux Indian culture. And of course, all of that is equally just as tainted and misguided history as everything else. But this is the earliest example I can find of picking up on that Indian culture, and then going to get the myths for a horror story. Later on, not very long afterwards, we have films like The Manitou and Wendigos and and things that that kind of started here. But this is the earliest one I can find, where it's an Indian legend that's been picked up and, and used. Does that make it groundbreaking? I'm not sure, but... I guess it does. It's certainly an early one, if it's not the first one. And, you know, it does remind me of episodes of the X-Files because there's quite a lot of them where they go into the, the, the Native American mysticism. I apologize when I call, say, Indians, but that's the term that's being used in this episode. And it's, I, I myself am a member of the Citizens Potawatomi Nation by ancestry. And even I, call us Indians. It's just what it was when I was growing up. It's, it's a tough habit to break. But anyway, um, that, you know, that, that germ here, again, it's, it's just, it feels like this is a proto piece of what ultimately became the X-Files. And in that respect, I, I, I got, you know, I really appreciate that in this story. And it doesn't hurt that there's a fair amount of humor in this episode that I think plays pretty oh, well. Yeah. Oh, it's a it's a cracking Miss Emily episode. Yes, yes, and and she is uh, she's a delight. But uh, <laughs> I uh, I wish she was in the you know I'd like her to be out there fighting crime with Carl, but uh, I don't think that's oh yeah likely to happen. But uh, yeah, yeah, actually, 
it, yeah, he needs a sidekick, and Miss Emily would be the perfect sidekick. <laughs> and you know, Ron got his his day as well in this episode, and and wasn't uh, quite the two dimensional foil, but he was treated pretty badly as always. Um, so we have, and and I I'm curious as to how much of this you are aware of. I'm sure you recognize Richard Keel from oh, yes. Spy Who Loved from Me and Moonraker. Indeed. Jaws. Have you seen him in much of anything else? Mm, probably, but nothing springs to mind at the moment. Because prior to this, back into the 60s, uh, he was frequently used as the big, dumb, imposing, obviously, um, character and you know you didn't really see him much after after about this period in time until he showed up in moonraker or in the spy who loved me which you know it's only a couple of years after this but um i i just you know i don't recall him being in a lot of movies so it's really just tv shows in the united states that that you would see him in and i'm kind of curious if he really made the translation across the pond um and he never really talks in, no, in no. shows um, occasionally a little bit, but he does have a sort of deep, but I guess people just don't, directors just don't want him to talk much in the, in the episode. So uh, I would say far, far and away the thing he's known for are the Bond films. I think, I think so. I think so. And I don't know if he did anything after them either. I can't think of anything post Moonraker that I've seen him in, which. No, no got a couple things here in no particular in no particular order did you notice that when he sat down at the beginning of the episode and he's recording the narration did that remind you of the sequence when he was in um i think it's the zombie where he's sitting down and he's got the bag and he's digging out the stuff and he's preparing the tools to fight off the villain remember that yeah, no, I remember that. I didn't didn't immediately uh, the parallel didn't immediately leap out. That was the first but. thing I thought of when I saw this episode. He's sitting down. And he's like, "Oh, this is one of those ones where he's narrating it at the point in time just before he goes to try to kill the creature, and then it turns out it's his lunch or dinner or whatever it was." And I I can't help thinking that was intentional, but maybe I'm maybe I'm reading it in there. He's also uh, it didn't didn't do it for me, but I I kind of feel like the I'm still not a big fan of the narration, though. I can see how they they use it to, to kind of drive you straight into the action of the episode. And it feels like a, a device that they're struggling now to find new ways to, you know, where will where will he be doing the narration this week? You know, will he be doing it sitting on a dock or in a car or in the office? Or uh, well, that's about it, really. Can't think of anywhere else. Wherever wherever he could be vlogging. If he had a phone, <laughs> and uh, you know, <laughs> it's oddly enough now that I think about it, it does sort of make a, a strange parallel. But all right, wow, they were prescient. Um, <laughs> he's <laughs> he is he is uh, predicted vlogging without the camera. Anyway, um, I love the quote, and he's misquoting sort of the uh, the rich are different from you and me, and then. He goes, oh, yeah. they have more money. That's 
uh, I looked that quote up, and oddly enough, F- that is F. Scott Fitzgerald. F. Scott Fitzgerald is the first half of it. The second half of it is misattributed to Ernest Hemingway. Huh. So Ernest Hemingway reported that he had a conversation with F. Scott Fitzgerald, where F. Scott Fitzgerald said the rich are different than you and I, and he replied, they have more money. But apparently, that's actually Ernest Hemingway recounting a story that F. Scott Fitzgerald did with a journalist somewhere along the line. It's a strange thing. But I just, what I thought was interesting about it was that Kolchak has put himself in the place of Ernest Hemingway in that <laughs> in that line. Yeah. And... I, I, he, I, I can I can see that would fit with his uh, his self image. Yes, um, and there were a couple of things I I so the, the two women who were killed at the first of the episode, the brazier um, magnet mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, magnate, and uh, the comment that that she was the bulwark of the garment industry, which is just <laughs> it's like okay. Um, <laughs> A, a, a subtle dig at the at the bra industry, and but the one I liked was the the woman who was called the steel butterfly. I, in a weird weird way, I appreciated that when she was, you know, Kolchak sets her up in the narration, and says she's, you know, the steel butterfly, and she sees a coy- she sees her dog has been killed. She sees a coyote, and what does she do? She goes for a a pin to kill that thing. <laughs> I I really appreciated that. That was that was a woman who you would not want to uh, cross, apparently, because you know even I'd be freaking out <laughs> if yeah, I, my yeah. dog was dead and there was a coyote out there. I would not think I better pull this big pin out of my hair and stab it. And um, I kind of thought that was I, I just like that characterization. Of her, it, it, I mean, it's just a little, just a little thing. Of course, she didn't last long after that. But, um, anyway, so what do you think of Vincenzo's nose for news? Because well, that whole sequence where Carl is saying, you know, no, these women didn't commit suicide. It must. This is before he's been anywhere. You know, just just reading about the incidents, he's he's picked up. This has to be murder, and. Even Emily's on his side. No, no, they don't fit the thing. And Tony is just I, know, I, love, I love that, where, where Miss Emily confounds everyone by saying, well, they don't fit the suicide pro- profile according to the Swedish studies. Uh-huh. And, you know, all we've got is her writing uh, society columns so far, and, and Vincenzo and Kolchak are both like, huh? And Kolchak's like, yeah! <laughs> I know. And Tony is still sitting there going, no, Carl, just turn in the story and get going. It's like, <clears throat> how did he get to be an editor? Well, if it was just Vincenzo, you could kind of say it's not so much that he hasn't got a nose for news in general. It's just that he's blinded by um, his problems with Kolchak and, the, you know, the fact that Kolchak is always trying to run off left, right and centre and the heels of some crazy and improbable story. And ignoring the fact that, however, apparently... Um, idiotic Kolchak may be he is almost a hundred percent right <laughs> and he, he, even if that were just totally down to luck at some point you would surely start thinking well okay this guy's very lucky but somehow he's just going to be lucky again and start assuming that you know he has a 
magic charm or something. That could explain but, why all the monsters keep showing up in his beat. Well, yeah, that, nothing more lucky than all you know than running into a monster every week. But um, I, I think the thing that possibly leads me to feel that Vincenzo isn't quite so much on the ball is that he doesn't really seem to know so much. Well, we I don't know what uh, Miss Emily's working on, but he doesn't even appear to know what updike is working on because he has to explain it to him he's working on this you know miss emily knows more about the story that he's working on than vincenzo does and vincenzo's supposed to be the bloody editor yeah yeah i like vincenzo but he doesn't he just doesn't come off as the brightest in the newsroom some days uh and and this one was yeah i mean i the 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 actor is entertaining and it you know i've nothing against the performance but the problem is the role is as many roles in kolchak seem to be mr shouty man and you compare that to uh someone like uh, skinner in the x-files where there's a much more uh complicated relationship with authority and a kind of appreciation of of the the position because you could you could go somewhere interesting with that you know obviously vincenzo is trying to keep a news agency on the straight and narrow and there's kolchak running around reporting extraordinary stories that a aren't particularly likely to be credible b are likely to you know uh, get certain backs up in, in mm-hmm. just in terms of um in terms of carl's uh shall we say interpersonal manners uh, <laughs> so thinking about you know law enforcement and the like and and c uh, uh, are, are are quite possibly um are quite possibly therefore going to cause those in positions of power and influence who don't want these stories to come out um to take uh you know to get on the warpath against the uh, against ins and 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 those could create various difficulties with vincenzo so if you had if you had someone in in that role of 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 being you know of being the boss um and 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 having to 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 kind of weigh up these issues but at base wanting to uh back back his team up and 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 look after his journalists mm-hmm. you could have something quite interesting there um Instead, no, Mr. Shouty Man in a dressing gown. Yes, yes. Um, and that scene didn't make a whole lot of sense either. Mm. So, oh, I'm here to make, because I figure you're going to come back. We never found out what he was going to tell him. Yeah. We, I mean, Carl didn't give him the time to do so, but, uh, you know, it just doesn't seem like, it just doesn't seem like it would be worth Vincenzo's time to sleep in the office in the off chance that Kolchak would come back so that he could yell at him some more yeah but do you think do you, do you think do you think the actor knew what he was there to tell him do you do you think the writer knew what he was there to say? you know i'm thinking about i i'll agree the, the kind not. of the kind of mo- the motivations for for these characters which always seems to be a bit of a weakness in the way uh, in the way these episodes are put together in the sense that there's a, there's a kind of serviceable story there but when it actually comes to playing it out scene by scene there's often uh more attention paid to uh creating a just a you know a kind of 
mildly comical interchange than there is to actually serving the the characters in the story. I so that there's, that there's some kind of ongoing motivation, some kind of driving force for each of the characters that takes them through to the end of the episode. I would agree to that. They're, they are there more as set pieces uh, in, yeah. in many cases uh, for the story. And yes, it's absolutely, we've said it before and, and say it again. It just seems, uh, Skinner is a really good example from the X-Files that, you know, he has pressure coming on from him from above and he has to deal with that. And at the same time, he's got basically a crazy, but frequently right, brilliant guy underneath him who he both runs interference for and tries to keep on the straight and narrow. Yeah. But he respects that the guy can get some results done. And I think that's one of the things that they did better in the X-Files is that Everyone at the Bureau knows that as a profiler, Fox Mulder is the best they've got. Yeah, so I, somehow that is convincing. Where where We're kind of told in this that Kolchak is a brilliant journalist. And we're kind of told in the X-Files that Mulder is a brilliant profiler. You know, he, he, has, he has a reputation. Obviously, he has a reputation as Spooky Mulder, but he also has a solid kind of uh, career path up to a point rising through the ranks through genuine talent and a usefulness that is quite sort of mainstream mm-hmm. um, and so I guess we're told the same kind of thing about Kolchak right you know that he he is a great journalist and presumably he's written some stories that aren't about zombies or vampires right but I get, Great, I never, I never, I've never been convinced. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's you know uh, another. You know, it, it, I, I, it, I, I, I guess, I guess, think, thinking about it because I'm, I'm sort of halfway through re- rewatching the the first season of the X Files at the minute, and there've been a couple of episodes where Mulder's expertise has played a role, as in people have come to him for help with cases right rather than necessarily being Please, x-files for example indeed indeed because they want they want to use Mulder, and and you know Mulder's not particularly interested in anything that's not an x-file or whatever and they're they they don't necessarily want to be seen to going to Mulder for help because of the the kind of unhelpful reputation he's got now which you, you could say the same thing about kolchak you know he's presumably by now he's got a bit of a reputation as a a maverick uh a getting people's backs up b writing stories about crazy stuff and probably no one but vincenzo would employ him anymore but mm-hmm. you know that 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 doesn't necessarily matter to him and and what's what's good about those stories establishing in the x-files is that even though he has that similar kind of reputation of being, um, you know, being being seen to be uh, even consorting with Mulder is is going to be bad for your career. People still come to him because he's that good, and there needs to be something to kind of show why 
Kolchak is that good. Right. And and this is and this is where in this particular story because long before Kolchak is on to any supernatural angle, he is you know, he's looked at whatever the reports are and his nose says murder. Hmm. You know, that's when he's trying to convince Tony, you know, these these must be murders and he wants to investigate them. That would be the point where if you thought he was a great journalist, you'd give him his lead and go, yes, go. And that's the, the problem. Now, if, you know, the first thing he popped up is he says, I think they were killed by a ghost. Then I could see Vincenzo going, oh, really, <laughs> Carl, I don't need stories about ghosts. Go away. But he didn't. It was just, it was entirely these two women just, I just don't think they killed themselves. And he should yeah. have, he should have given it to him. Uh, and then when he... And, and, and a more realistic attitude would have, would have been to, to kind of, ra- rather than shout down, you know, that I, I don't believe, I don't believe you've got any evidence or whatever, would be to, to kind of ask. So, um, you know, to, 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 to sort of go through the, the, the facts and, and ch- but essentially, <laughs> Kolchak should have been talking about the suicide protocols. I, I did enjoy the fact it was Miss Emily who brought it up. And Vincenzo should have been listening to him, I guess. Mm-hmm. He should have. And, 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 the, and the reason he gives, you know, the, the reason he gives, that Vincenzo gives, do, do you believe it? So, you know, he's, he, he says that he doesn't want Kolchak out there because Kolchak has no tact. Okay, well, I believe, I believe Kolchak has no tact. He has no report with society. Fair yeah. enough. But if you were Vincenzo and you actually thought there was a story there, Okay. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you either say, "Well, the more important thing here is the story," or say, "You know, hey, why don't you work with Miss Emily on this?" Kind of. I know. Mm-hmm. I'm now just desperately looking for ways to get her in as a sidekick. But uh, you know, to, 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 in other words, pair him up with another journalist who could actually maybe schmooze the people a bit better and therefore get the you know get the story, but. But no, he's not thinking about a way of doing it. He's just thinking about a way of telling Carl no. I'm I'm kind of disappointed that Carl never got the chance to go out and buy those clothes, though. Oh, I did. I did another cracking Miss Emily line when he runs out of the office, say, "I'm going to buy myself some new clothes." And Miss Emily shouts, "Finally, finally!" <laughs> well, it could go with that hat that she got him. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I was thinking. I was thinking about that. I was thinking. You know, I've, I've discovered what Miss Emily's motivation, at least, is through the series, which is bit by bit trying to get Kolchak to dress better. Yeah, but but he didn't. And I, you know, I when that scene came up, I was like, "That's right. He did have to go out to get clothes for this episode." And then then I remembered. Oh yeah, he doesn't actually ever get there because of uh, the you know his. Well, I would. It would play hell with continuity if he did, so they had to find a way of stopping it. I'm not 100% so the reason, convinced. The, re- the reason he doesn't get there, right, is because he discovers that the police have been called to the... The gem exchange. Gem trading, whatever it is. Now, how does he know that? He had a police radio. Oh, okay. He's got I, a police I radio thought, in his car. I thought for a minute there he, ha- he must have some friendly contact in the police where I thought he'd actually, you know... For a moment, he bothered to cultivate some 
police source and actually been slightly friendly to someone from it. But no, okay, he's got radio. He's got police radio, yeah. He hears the calls. He's he's done that in a couple of other episodes where he gets the call and and, and turns yeah, around. Yeah. And, right, so yeah. I remember uh, that now. It was interesting, that sequence, because despite the fact that the police chief keeps yelling at him to leave. Fancy that, a police chief yelling at Kolchak. Kolchak. He doesn't. Nice twist. And and the police chief, chief uh, whatever he is, captain, sergeant, I don't know, probably not a chief, but... Um, Usually a captain. Actually seems to be tolerating him. I mean, yes, he's yelling at him, and yes, he's saying, get out of here, but he's not wasting any time actually forcing him out of the way. I mean, they've got crowd control police keeping spectators out. I think it's... I think it's almost um, meant to be a, a recognition that the press actually have the right to be there. He just he's telling him to get out because that's what you do to Kolchak, but it's not worth <laughs> the effort. Well, okay, so, or, or let's because we've got two, we've got we've got two kinds of police chief. I either the kind of police chief who doesn't. You know, who's too inept to eject Kolchak, but doesn't realise how um, incapable they are. Or we've got the kind of police chief who's too inept to eject Kolchak and knows of their limitations, and he's the latter. <laughs> I was thinking, I was thinking more in terms of let's say it's not Kolchak, and they're in a dangerous situation. They think that there's somebody in here who's dangerous, possibly armed, who possibly a killer, and. There is a reporter who, there's that kind of, yeah, you can't stop the press. You know, they, they hold up but their press badge and they go, I'm coming in. And you're going to tell them, this is dangerous, leave. And they're not going to, but you've got to do that because when they get shot, you can say, I told him to leave and he didn't. <laughs> and I, I, is, it's is this, what I is this, feel for. Is this a First Amendment thing? Is that is? I'm trying to work out how this would happen over here because it's private property, and it, you can't you can't you can't just run around swiping a press badge and and go wherever you like. Okay, well, now here. first off, how it works in real life and how it works in 1970s TV <laughs> may very well be two very different things, but but it is very much a trope uh, back through tv 60s 50s whatever that that the guy has the press pass in his hat and you know that gets you past the police lines and the police don't particularly like it but if they start stopping you then you're going to start shouting about you know freedom of the press freedom of the press in real life i honestly have no idea if that's the way it works or, or if there's, you know, if that's just a TV trope, but you know, it's what the because, the because I'm thinking, and 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 I don't know, I don't know what the state of of kind of forensic uh, police work would have been in 1974 or wherever we are at this point. Um, but even, uh, you know, even in a public place, if you have a potential crime scene now. Then you wouldn't let regular police officers trample all over it. You, you know, there would there would have to be procedures that you would go through to make sure you didn't contaminate the evidence on the scene. You'd, you'd make sure only the officers that 
had a good reason to be there were even allowed to to step onto it so think about life I, on mars yep yeah, fair enough. I mean, I, 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 I certainly take the point that in forty years, things have changed hugely in in respect of that. And you could probably even go twenty years back, and the things I'm talking about just wouldn't have applied. Mm-hmm. So, well, thirty years anyway. You know, I was I was ten when this episode originally aired. What I know of the way the police worked, I got from TV at that age. So. Uh, and it, that didn't TV never lies. A TV never lied back in those days. Now it's all fake news. But back then, uh, that was, that was <laughs> the way. <laughs> it was. It was the greatest teacher there is. It was. I learned so much about the world from TV <laughs> that I had to then unlearn. <laughs> <laughs> and this is uh, this is one of them. Uh, Kolchak cultivates um, a contact here. He he. He goes out and he sees an ex-con gem cunner to uh, mm-hmm. to find out about these jewel jewel robberies. I mean, he he did some reporting. He did some investigating here. Yeah, yeah. No pat pat on the head for Carl for that one. Uh, and I'm go- I'm going to say it's a good episode for journalists in in general because the the other journalists at the press conference for once actually seem to be doing a reasonably good job of asking sensible questions rather than just shouting at culture shut up um and generally asking kind of fawning oh what else is on your press release that you'd like to tell us mr please captain type questions particularly the guy that was like yeah you didn't answer the question about the dog or so yeah i guess uh not that any of them were anywhere near the crime scenes Except for Kolchak, who's apparently the only one who has a crime radio, or at least radio in his car. Uh, that is the... I would expect more than one press guy to be there at the time. But, uh, you know, that that was the one thing. You know, if there had been another reporter who was trying to fight his way in there, I could, I could kind of... Now, what yeah. the heck I can I can kind of see from a story point of view why they don't necessarily do that because either well i guess no witness i guess there could be something interesting which would be that you had another journalist who carl had some kind of uh friendship or respect for but maybe worked in a different way could be potentially be quite interesting but looking at the way most characters in kolchak get written it would almost certainly be a rival who shouted at kolchak and who kolchak shouted at and we could do with one fewer of them (laughs) Probably, probably true. I'm trying to think if there are any at any point along the way, but I'm 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 not going to dig too deeply into my memories to see if I can uh, I can come up with that. Um, do you think that a, a modern audience watching this? Uh, and I didn't get a chance to watch this one with my kids, but do you think a modern audience would understand the frustration of somebody who rips pages out of phone books? <laughs> is that a thing you've even encountered I, I know you're significantly younger than me and and phone books have been phasing out for a, a long time hang on what do you, you mean have i come across phone books that have had pages ripped out yeah yeah okay well i mean you don't even see a phone book anymore so no I, well you barely see phone boxes anymore right i mean i can i can remember when i was in college they were still fairly common and they still had phone books in them 
And then, you know, not long after that, then they just took out the phone books because some jerk was always finding something in the yellow pages and then ripping the page out that you needed to take with him. And that was so much of a problem back then. And now, you know, I, I picture my kids looking at that going, I, you know, you shouldn't tear a book, <laughs> right? <laughs> No, well, you, can't te- you can't tear a book now, can you? I it's mean, not try just, tearing a Kindle. Yeah, it's not just it's not just that he's tearing a book. It's that when you go to look for something, that page is not there. That's the that's the part that's maddening about it. Anyway, <laughs> I, I just wasn't sure. I mean, I I don't know how that played out. The younger you are, the less you're likely to have experienced that in the course of your life. But yeah, I'm sure whoever wrote that episode probably um probably has a pet peeve about people who rip pages out of phone <laughs> well i expect everyone did really i mean it was it was an annoying phenomenon but it was better than not having the phone book at all because you still had a chance that you would find the the number you were looking for right after it might that, have been on one of the remaining pages you'd have the thing that held the phone book dangling there in the in the booth and then there'd be no book yeah. inside of it. That was, that was also an equally uh, annoying experience of the time. Yeah. Or someone would have nicked the receiver and you just have the cords dangling with yeah, yeah. a couple of wires sticking seen, out. Seen some of those too. Yeah. Oh, oh, memory, memory lane <laughs> Two two old men reminiscing now. It is, it is so, it is so weird looking back on these and, and just, Thinking how different, how different the story would have to play out with cell phones, or with smartphones, or with the internet. Or can you imagine except, if he had ex- the internet? Can you imagine all he had to do is to say? I mean, even in the X Files, they don't go to the internet to find information. But I literally, right before this episode, popped up the internet, typed in Diablero, and found this legend. <laughs> Not much, but, a few places, but it's like. But you, I, I, I don't know the. I don't know that it's actually that different in terms of. I mean, obviously, you would have to to redress the story in some in some respect, and you can see that in modern story writing. I mean, a lot of the time with with mobiles, oh, people happen to be in a in a blank spot or whatever for convenient story purposes. But if you were tr- if you were investigating these deaths and you began to s- suspect that it was the the Diablero, you would have to have that suspicion before you Google Diablero. True. It's like by the time you've worked that out, you've done the work. You need to kind of be aware of 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 you know. You need to have an idea that you're going in that direction, and that's much harder. You know, pe- people. People often, actually, to this day, are not that good at using Google That's for true. things that are a bit, um, you know, a bit uh, am- ambiguous or a bit ill-defined, where you're where you're trying to to kind of Work track something tangent, down yeah. without knowing exactly what it is that you're looking for, but you just know one particular aspect or another particular aspect, and and you think, oh, well, it's it's. Uh, you know, it's it's I don't know. To take the 
the shape shifting aspect. We'll say take the shifting into a crow, and and so you type in crow, and you get all sorts of other hits that that come up that have nothing to do with uh, Nathan. You, you know, yeah, yeah. It, no, it, I, it, it, it's just it's just another it's just another resource. It's not, even though it is often used this way in in television, it is not a kind of magic wand. It's not a it's not a it's not a sonic screwdriver of information. Magnificent though it is, you know. <laughs> yes, but you know, one of the features of uh, a Kolchak story so far, almost every time, is that he ends up going to some expert, and they're not always as what you would think of as an expert. And I can't think of an example right off the top of my head, and hopefully I'm not projecting forward. Um, but, you know, yes, it's one thing. If you're going, if you're looking for stuff about Native Americans and you go to the chair of the Department of Native American Studies at the local university, that kind of makes sense. But if you go to, um, well, okay, the guard dog, there's an example he, he wants to find out what kind of an animal left print that killed that guard dog. And he goes to a guard dog training place. <laughs> that just isn't exactly the, the first thing I'd think of when I was thinking, I need an expert who can identify an animal print. I'd be thinking no. of a zoo. Or, again, the university biology department or something. I wouldn't be thinking guard dog school. But so, I don't think that that particularly stands up well in this episode. I mean, I, if you if we were watching it in nineteen seventy four, would we've been any more convinced? <clears throat> Admittedly, but I but I think it's a thing that they do in in the Night Stalker, and here we have the situation where he goes to this university, he sees the Diablero, or he's told what it is. He says, "Oh, that's the thing." So we've got that piece, and then. And I find this kind of a weird structure. They wait till later in the episode to bring him back. And now they've got a group of Native Americans who want to talk to him and tell him the legend in more detail. Hmm. You know, there's your Google. Once, you know, once yes. you're nailed on to Diablero, then suddenly, uh, you know, that part. And I thought that was just, I just thought that was a strange scene. Not, yes. not, not just that they brought in this one guy who had heard about it and go, oh, I got to talk to him because he's, you know, in danger. But the fact that he had a group of four or five others who were just hanging around in the back for show, I think. It was just a, it was it's kind of, a, anyway, I, you know, that, that's, it killed a little time. It, it added a little color. Um, well, it's 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 it. From one point of view, it's more interesting to watch than seeing Kolchak reading it off a Google search result oh, yeah. page. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. But on the on on the other hand, the points you make, particularly about having having all the kind of hangers on, would have been equally uh, odd in a pre-Google age. Yes, it, it it felt weird no matter no matter which way. Yeah, you know, I'm going to try an experiment uh, after we podcast. I'm going to go to Google and I'm going to try to put in I'm going to try to put in what I know about it up to the point that the uh, the chair the department uh, expert told him about the name of the Diablero. 
So everything that he'd seen and witnessed prior to that point, I'm going to put in and see if we can find something that comes up on it just for the, just for the sheer, uh, giggles of it. But anyway, um, weird thing I noticed in this episode, halfway through it, roughly halfway through it, the Diableros MO changes. Almost all of the murders up until he re- kills the woman in the, with the chauffeur are suicides. He trances them. And they kill themselves. Yeah. Or they appear to kill themselves. When he reaches the car in that episode, everyone he kills after that, he just breaks their necks. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I guess that's just, I mean, unless you can think of some excuse for it, it's just expediency in storytelling. I also think there may have been a mistake there because the first woman who dies with a broken neck and her chauffeur, when Kolchak shows up, he says to the cop, let me guess, neck's broken? Oh, yeah. And the cop said, how'd you hear that? A little birdie told me. Been no broken necks up to that point, to my knowledge. Yeah. So I, it's almost like maybe Whoops. it was a rewrite or something, and they uh, they didn't quite uh, work it out. I think the suicide angle is better. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's much more intriguing. And, th- and that's what that's what kind of motivates the the kind of early discussions that we've talked about uh, over whether there is a story there or not. And and those kind of interesting exchanges in the INS office. So and and there's a, another thing to it. Um, at the gem exchange, the two guards who, according to the police report, accidentally shot each other. But then, according to the ballistics report, turns out they shot themselves. Which, mm-hmm. you know, I appreciate that Kolchak ferreted that information out and, and tricked the police because that's the best way to get your information from the cops is to trick them and make them feel like idiots. But is there something about this legend that we're not told that the Diablero makes people kill themselves? Because wouldn't it have just been as easy for him to make them shoot each other? Well, that might be more complicated. Well, I mean, we didn't see what happened, but it, it was just kind of like, so is there something about what he's doing that makes it more appropriate for them to kill themselves? I don't know, appropriate is the right word. I don't, I, 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 I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily assume that it, it makes any difference. But if, if the MO had so far been for them to kill themselves, then yeah, fine, have them kill themselves. And, Obviously, the police would would then jump to the conclusion that they had shot each other, but that wouldn't necessarily have been intended. Mm-hmm. You know, if it, the Diablero might not even have thought of that, in in so much as you know, there's any kind of rational planning going on here. True. I mean, he's he seems to be fairly uh, fairly single mindedly just after the gems. But um, all right, let's see. So we have the sequence. Um, with again, Emily, Updike, two payphones, Kolchak, where he's trying to get the get the address of the gem auction going on it. I, you know, I, I loved that. I really did. Yeah. I, I, it was just it. It reminds me a lot of why I really remember this show fondly from. From my childhood, you know, looking at the horror angle of it, yes, there are episodes that have creepy, tense sequences, 
things that scared me, but what I remember was that it was fun in this way. And it's why I like the character of Carl Kolchak. And I'm guessing that's probably why it's had such influence on subsequent um, creative talents uh, like Chris Carter. It must be. It must be what makes this thing enduring is the characters here, or at least the the character interplay. But, all right, let's see. Um, Carl also almost managed to con his way into that auction. Oh, yeah, yeah, because he cleverly, cleverly uses an alias, so they won't know it's... <laughs> Colworth, yes. <laughs> Carl Colworth. And, and a snooty <laughs> accent. Well, that he was putting on there. Um, well, uh, the 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 um, I kind of give him credit to the journalists in this episode. I'm I'm not quite so impressed. The the security has been checked by Mister Baker. Uh, you know, telling him mm. you know bas- basically go away because we've got everything covered. You know, we don't need to know about your concerns, and obviously. We we could go, yeah, but hang on a minute. The issue here is you don't know about the nature of this threat. You know, a shape-shifting raven can can, can get get round whatever. Mm-hmm. And so you, 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 you're missing a vital piece of information. In fact, it turns out that Kolchak can get round the security. So it's not even sufficient to, to stop a regular-shaped human getting past. A street so, reporter who's probably drunk. Yeah. <laughs> As they said, yeah. Um, let's see. I, speaking speaking uh, of the Raven, I have to say the first thing that occurred to me at the opening of the episode was Edgar Allan Poe. I thought, oh, that's an interesting theme for this. I thought we were going to get a version of Nevermore, but uh, alas not, because I think that would have been a, a, a nice curiosity. Well, if the show had gone longer, I'm sure they would have had to come back to Ravens at some yep. point. Well, because the other thing is they, they do, they, he does transform into a dog as well as a raven. And obviously the previous shape-shifting episode we had was a dog. So that felt a bit of a I had completely forgotten that. I had literally forgotten that, that the devil's platform, he was shape-shifting into a dog. I just, like, put that episode out of my head. <laughs> well, it's, it's understandable. Right. The other, the, the, it, wasn't, it wasn't the dog episode, but there was another episode, and I've forgotten which one again, where he also defeats the monster of the week um, with the flash on his camera. That would be the, the, yeah. the, 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 the funky noise rather than the, the actual flash. But <laughs> Not many people realise that, that a camera flash is... A lethal weapon. Exactly, exactly. It turns out that Carl, Carl is carrying around with him a, a it, what is essentially a, a kind of Sonic multi-purpose screwdriver. toolbox yeah. uh, f- filled with crack weaponry useful against the supernatural threats. Come to think of it, where are the pictures? So well, the there, sequ- well, there was a. There's a sequence where they develop the picture and they're up all night developing the photos and. They get the one of the dead dog. But Kolchak took a dead-on, perfectly clear, standing-there shot of the Indian 
at the top of the stairs. Because that's the first time oh, yeah. he flashed his thing. We never see a picture of the Indian. And then when they're, when he's killing them at the, the gem auction, Kolchak takes two or three more pictures of him staring right at the camera before he transforms into a, a raven and, and flies off. And never do any of those pictures show up in the course of the episode. I, I'm going to put it down to, um, may, maybe, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, maybe he screw, screwed up taking the photo or something. Cause he, he obviously is such a terrible photographer because when he, when he takes a photo, he doesn't, he never kind of really bothers to, to compose. He just sort of adopts this kind of stance, usually at quite a distance from whatever the subject is and cracks off a, 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 a few flashes. I don't think and, he's going for the photojournalism prize there, but yeah. Well, no, we got we got the crack in this one where where uh, he's kind of well. Finally, you got one in focus, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, we're what eight episodes into this show, mm. couple of couple of movies as well. How many times have I seen Kolchak actually focusing the camera? In fact, come to that, surely that thing is a fixed focus. I'm going to say that should be a fixed focus camera. Yeah, so. <laughs> He, he so he's, he's to managed to get every single photograph up to this point with a fixed focus camera that is never out of focus because it just has a tiny aperture. That that, and yet they're always out of focus. Well, Man, this guy's good. Even a, even an out of focus picture of a eight foot tall Indian standing at the top of the stairs should have been. Maybe he had his finger out. in front of it. That's possible. That's possible. The flash wouldn't put it past him. Fine, but yeah. Uh, uh, and I know I, I I really enjoy that I I do enjoy it. It's just it's you know there are just so many things that you can just kind of go yeah right. <laughs> um, so the last I, 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 well, I just I did I did enjoy um towards the end of the penultimate act, uh you know in it in in the room where Kolchak bursts in and the crow's there and it flies out of the window. Mm-hmm. Cop runs into the room and yells freeze. And then because it's the end of the act, it goes... And, but they actually do it. They hold a freeze frame for about a second before it goes to black. I thought, that's quite meta. <laughs> classic, classic 70s cop uh, uh, ending there. Yeah. Um, another one of those Chekhov's guns uh, in this episode. We start off with Updike talking about a... Yeah office or uh, apartment building that's uh, abandoned and later in the episode Kolchak remembers that piece of evidence or that information to put two and two together uh i can't remember what the last one of those was but it was something equally unlikely <laughs> i i also appreciate the fact that you have a building that's 40 stories high they've only built out five stories the company went bankrupt, but they loaded all the bathroom fixtures all the way up to the 39th floor. <laughs> usually when they're going bankrupt, they, they usually load those, you know, let's put all the stuff on floor six. All right, let's build it out. Okay, now put the stuff on floor seven because it doesn't make or maybe five at a time. But it's it was it was lucky for him because he had one the easiest kill of a supernatural creature yet. Oh, I shine a mirror in its face. Oh, 
Done. Easiest kill yet. And he went prepared, which it wasn't clear that he had, right? He rushed off, gets to the building, has to climb 34 floors. Um, and the whole time I'm thinking, you idiot. Did you remember to take a mirror? Because, <laughs> you know, they didn't show us that. And then when he pulls it out and then promptly drops it. Oh, that hurt. It, that really hurt. Um, but, you know, with a creature that all you have to do is show it its own reflection and it's going to die, I guess they had to do something to work up the um, the tension there or give him a chase at the end of the episode. But Yeah. Then he lists off all those other missing gems that have never shown up. Did we get any, did we get any hint whether or not he thought that was true or he was just making it up? I mean, not that they weren't missing, but that, that it's the result of the Diablero. Do you get a feel well, for wh- it whether, whether he, whether he believed it or whether it was? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was talking about the, the star of the Romanovs or, or whichever one. It's like, would the Diablero be? In Russia, it, he just he's just rattling off all these missing jewels and attributing them to this creature. And I was like, I, is that just journalistic embellishment? Or I guess you shouldn't be embellishing if you're a journalist. So uh, let's call it narrative embellishment. Yeah, it, it just didn't quite it didn't quite fit for me when he was giving that at the end. I thought. This story, you actually have a story. You witnessed it, and all this stuff happened, and you saw him destroying the gems, and you you saw the people dead, and you saw the transforming, and all that stuff. And then you put in some speculation at the end of it. And I... Um, I don't think I have anything else um, about the episode. Me neither. Well, in that case, um, next time when we're looking at the Night Stalker, it should be the Spanish Moss Murders. And Mm. Simon, thank you for joining me. A pleasure, as always. And listeners, I do hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. Fusion Patrol is a Lone Locust production. Like us? Please consider becoming our sponsor at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. We'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Stop by and visit us at our website, FusionPatrol.com. Search for us on Facebook under Fusion Patrol. Check out our Twitter handle, at Fusion Patrol. Or just send us an email at feedback at FusionPatrol.com. Please come join the conversation. Our music is Fight the Future by Amberwolf.